filter. <laughs> All right. Well, good morning, guys. Welcome again to Hiawatha. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Actually, this is not really working there. There we go. And as uh, Spencer said, happy March. I know some of you guys are spending your first Minnesota, uh, first winter in Minnesota this year. And if that's the case, March, just know that March can either encourage you or crush your dreams. <laughs> like, like an ant under a boot, you know, just uh, probably a little bit of both, but just, you know, it's, hopefully it's going to be the former, but <clears throat> anyway, we're almost there. March 1st is a psychological help for me, so I just praise God this morning, it's March and not February anymore. February is just, it is the worst month. Did Spencer say that? It, oh yeah, it wasn't Amy, right? That was, that was the thing. I don't know where you went, but anyway. Uh, well, hey, uh, we're going to series right now on Song of Solomon, so we're going to continue today. i got a lot to talk about, so we're going to dive right in. If you're new to our church, uh, and, or maybe new to the Bible even, or one of those two, the Song of Solomon is an Old Testament uh, book of poetry. It's a love story, or as I've been calling it, a love dialogue, uh, more accurately, because there's no uh, kind of third-party narrator here. It's just the, the two in love who are talking about each other, and they're anticipating love, they're experiencing love, and it uh, moves from engagement to today's the wedding, which I'll talk about in a second, all the way through the wedding night. We'll talk about sex these next two weeks as well, after this week, and then uh, more about their uh, married life together, which includes some conflict and resolution. That'll be uh, down the road here a little bit too, but primarily a love dialogue. And so we're learning about love broadly, but specifically God's love for his people. And so it's, it's, been, it's been about a lot of things. This is about our, uh, what, fourth, fifth week in it here. So we've talked about a lot of different types of themes that all relate to love in one fashion or another. But uh, primarily it's been about, and we've seen this theme come up a lot, it's been about separation and coming together. Uh, if you want to just summarize Song of Solomon in, in kind of a few words there, it's basically been about that. There's been separation or threats or things in between the lovers that have been overcome or at least anticipated to overcome. And today's the wedding, which is the ultimate coming together, you could say, of two people in this uh, biblical, biblical poem. And so we'll look more uh, into that here in just a, a few minutes. But again, as we've been saying, this is a part of our daily storylines as well. Whether you guys are married or not, some of you are engaged, married or not, though, whatever your marital status, separation from loved ones constitutes these many or sometimes major problems during which our hearts yearn for resolution. And remember, this is also the church's storyline as well. It's on a greater spiritual level. Ephesians 2.13 says, You who were once far off from God have been brought near to him by the blood of Christ. That's the gospel right there. And there's many ways to talk about the gospel. One of them talks about it in terms of separation and reunification with our creator. You who were once far off from God have been brought near, but there's an agent that has brought us near. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. When he died on the cross for our sins, he brought us somewhere. He moved us from a place of separation to being close to God once again. So, biblically, there's this pronounced intersection between uh, theology and experience then we cannot miss. Our storylines consist of these many or major separations with loved ones, maybe our spouses that get fixed on a, on a regular, sometimes even just daily basis. And the Bible says that is uh, the ultimate storyline, the meta-narrative, you could say, that we all share. And especially if you're a Christian, if you have been reunited with your creator, uh, then you can say amen to that. Like I, We experience this on a regular basis in our marriages, but we've ultimately experienced this on a higher spiritual level with our God as well. He has been at work in the world fixing the problem of banishment and separation from him. So that's what love is about. It's about many things, but it's about undoing separation. 
Um, this really has to do with God more than with us. So remember, this, that's how we're approaching this book. Uh, not just seeing a human principle for marriage, but we're seeing this as a picture, as the Bible does so many times elsewhere in the Bible, kind of using the Bible to read itself here this, with this principle. Reading this as though it's a divine picture, a symbol, a metaphor for God's love for his, his people. So have that in mind. If you're brand new to the book today, brand new to our series, have that in mind, reading ourselves as the woman in the story, as the Bible says elsewhere, with a bride of God or the bride of Christ, if we believe God calls himself a groom, many places, Old and New Testament in the scriptures. And so when marriage is talked about in this capacity, especially in this capacity, it's a long book. It's heavily poetic, but very symbolic as well, full of depictions of love and commitment and faithfulness and oneness and all kinds of great things like that. Especially with this book, we should read this as, ultimately speaking, a picture of God's love for his people. So have that in mind, at least if we have that, it's a Again, tough sledding. If you've been here, you know this. If you read this book before, you know this. It's, it's a difficult book, notoriously difficult to understand and even to figure out who's speaking where sometimes. Uh, we do have different headers, though, in the book, like she, he, and, and others, the friends, the single friends of the woman who, that can kind of help us in our translations to know when these uh, shifts occur with who's speaking. But today is all from the perspective of the woman. She's speaking about Solomon. Uh, her husband, King Solomon, who lived around 960 B.C. And, and reigned around that time, son of David in the Old Testament, wrote this book, and he's writing about his experience here. But she's speaking about him coming up out of the wilderness uh, to marry her. So let's read it. Verse 6. What is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant? Behold, it is the litter of Solomon, Around it are sixty mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made it posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him, on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. All right, so a little context here. Uh, again, it's, it's the day of the wedding, the waiting's over, and we've had a couple of chapters here, about two and, a, two and a half chapters worth of anticipation, whether it's been her dreams wanting this day that was last week, or both of them just talking about these things that have come in between. Even if it's just a period of time or a little bit of separation, which we might not say that's an evil thing, but it constitutes, again, it's almost like the separation is this mini antagonist in the story that's just kind of hanging there and, and the, two, the couple wants us to be ended and resolved. Today is the, the coming together of, of these two. The waiting's over and if, if you've been married, you know how long engagements can feel. Even if it's just two weeks, you feel like this is too long. Let's just get married. But the waiting is over and, and the passage here is mostly describing Solomon's wedding party. When it says the litter of Solomon, it's his entourage essentially, the groomsmen you could say are coming up out of the wilderness uh, for the wedding. He's arriving, adorned in deep love for his, for his wife-to-be. But it's how he arrives and how he's described that becomes our special focus, our theological focus for today. So this will not be a, what is the Bible, a survey on what the Bible says about weddings kind of sermon, nor will it be, this probably goes without saying, but nor is this passage to be something like, well, this is how we should model our wedding days, kind of after this, you know, after this event. Not the point. Uh, the point is to have a special angle on it of 
What's the, what's the theological imagery here? And remember, the particular angle we take interpretationally sometimes, especially when it's cryptic and foggy, is where else in the Bible does this imagery arise? And how do those more clear parts help us understand the foggier parts? So we've been doing that throughout the whole series. And this is just a great uh, help there for reading the Bible elsewhere too, not just here in this bit enigmatic of a book, it's poetry, but elsewhere as well. When it's foggy, when it's difficult, look for those words and think, where else does this come up? Does Jesus quote this? Does Jesus say these words? Where else does it come up in a more clear manner that can help us read into here to kind of blow that fog away? which is ultimately what Christ does. And this is how we're reading this book, is, an, is a prophetic anticipation of Christ's love for the church. So have that uh, in mind as, as we go. All right, so the two sides here, the divine and human side. forgot if I mentioned that, but if you're new to our series, the divine side, again, uh, being this picture of God's love for his people, the human side being more human, human marriage principle type stuff, which we'll come to you later. More is attack on today, uh, the the great majority of today's, uh, today's sermon is the divine side. And that is uh, God redeeming, it's a key word for today, redemption, which means to buy back from something. Uh, God redeeming and loving his people. An Exodus-like wedding. I'll explain that if that's a, a cryptic concept to you here in just, just a second. So although we've been talking a lot about this divine side as we've been going throughout this series, uh, how, how it's a picture of God's love for his people. What I have not mentioned yet, and this is sort of a contextual piece to that puzzle of reading this book spiritually, not just literally, but as, as a picture of a man's love for his wife and vice versa, but the spiritual capacity, it's a contextual thing. What I have not mentioned is this, and, and that is in similar fashion, the Jews have traditionally incorporated a liturgical reading of the Song of Solomon into annual Passover celebrations. So the Jews traditionally have read this book at Passover. Uh, and so, and uh, just a couple of things, I'll mention what Passover is here in just a second, but a couple of things from Barry Webb in his book on the matter. Uh, he says uh, this in his book, uh, Five Festal Garments. The spiritual interpretation of Song of Songs reached its full development in mainstream Judaism, probably from the 7th century AD, in which the song corresponds to five periods in God's covenant relationship with Israel. From the Exodus, and giving of the law to the Roman diaspora and the coming of the Messiah. All this eventually found liturgical expression in the reading of the Song of Songs at the Passover, Judaism's celebration par excellence of God's saving love for his people. And he continues later, To be redeemed is to be loved, and to be called to love in return. And the Song of Songs is part of the Passover liturgy, is a powerful annual reminder of this fact. <clears throat> so I share this uh, for a couple of reasons, and I could have brought this up. But, uh, you, can, you could talk about this at any one juncture of the Song of Solomon, but <clears throat> we're bringing it up today because some key words that are used in chapter 3, and I'll get to that. But I share this for two main reasons. One, to see that there is not just a biblical precedent to read the book this way, but a traditional precedent to read the Song of Solomon is more than just a love story between a man and a woman. And two, relatedly, to help us see that this poetic book is helping to tell a greater story than just the one it's telling. The greater story being the one of divine redemption of lost but loved sinners like us. So then the question becomes, uh, what is Passover? And we'll talk about this from kind of a, an Old Testament Jewish perspective leading into a New Testament, New Testament perspective as well, and they're both important, but what is the Passover, and how does it thematically connect 
to the Song of Solomon? Why do the Jews read this book, a book about love and sex and marriage in connection with their Passover festival? What's the connection uh, there? Maybe especially with uh, today's passage, which I'll get to in a moment. The Passover was one of the uh, three main Jewish festivals, uh, this one in particular, that helped commemorate the Exodus event of Israel's history. When God saved Israel from Egyptian slavery, guided them through the wilderness, and then finally up into the promised land. So think about it in terms of kind of a three-pronged thing. Saved from Egypt, wandering through the promised land, then up, uh, sorry, the wilderness, then up into the promised land to be with God where he was. in the special land he had gifted them earlier in their history, but where they weren't at uh, for this period of their history. The Passover word then was associated with, and I'll read this uh, bottom thing here, the timeline there is in the middle, I'll come back to that, but just follow with me in the bottom paragraph here. The first Passover, uh, and the Passover word itself, was associated with the final plague that God sent through Moses upon Egypt to instigate Pharaoh to let his people go. It was the plague of the death of the firstborn. All firstborns died, <clears throat> except those who had a lamb's blood painted over their doors. Those houses and the, and the firstborns within those houses were passed over, hence the word. After this occurs, uh, historically, Israel was saved from Egyptian slavery. They exodused out, or was, they were delivered out of Egypt to greener pastures, i.e., uh, eventually speaking, through the wilderness, but ultimately the, the promised land. So that's where the idea of Passover comes from here. And back, going back to the middle with what's highlighted there. So the Passover lamb comes kind of in between the uh, redemption being delivered up from slavery in Egypt. The Passover lamb plague occurs uh, it's this final instigating thing for Pharaoh to truly let the people of Israel go. The exodus proper occurs. They exodus out of Egypt. They wander again in the wilderness uh, for a time and then finally enter the, uh, the promised land. So the other bookend then, and this is a really important thing. If you're new to this, this is one of the most important things, honestly, you can understand about how the whole Bible connects because it's such a pronounced theme. came up a lot in our uh, Matthew series uh, last fall, if you're here for this too, but the other bookend, you could say, to this motif in the New Testament is to see the Exodus event as our story as well, the church's story, just in a greater spiritual capacity. And so two big places we see this in the New Testament, just for a little bit of context here, though we could spend hours on this. Uh, Luke 9, 31 in the New Testament, it's paraphrased, but it says that the spirits of Moses and Elijah appeared to Jesus and spoke with Jesus about his Exodus that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Your, your translations say departure, but the Greek word there is actually literally exodus. Same word used for exodus proper type language in the Old Testament in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translations of the Hebrew uh, Old, Old Testament. But same idea. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, even more explicitly says, Christ is our Passover lamb. Church, Christ is like the Passover lamb was to Israel in the Old Testament, he is that ultimate one now. He's the ultimate Passover lamb. He has been sacrificed for our good, for our benefit, that we might be passed over. So going back to Luke 9, what happened at Jerusalem? So that's what he was talking about with the spirits of Moses and Elijah was, when I go to Jerusalem, an exodus is going to occur there. What happened at Jerusalem? He died. He was sacrificed. He spilt his blood. And that serves as an exodus-type event, a spiritual one, for the church, Jew and Gentile, who would uh, one day trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins. So he died, spilt his blood to cover the hearts of the people in a Passover kind of way, so that judgment and wrath can pass over them, us, and so that they can in turn escape from the Egypt of 
sin and death. Again, very pronounced New Testament idea here. In every New Testament book of the Bible, implicitly, mostly, sometimes very explicitly as well. Like when you see the words redemption or slavery used in the New Testament, which is a very Pauline word. The Apostle Paul uses this a lot, like in the book of Romans, for example. Not just pulling those words out of the air. These are, these are Exodus themes, Exodus words that, he, that he's at least implicitly suggesting to the church that you are this new Israel who is truly escaping from things this time that really matter. The first Exodus was lesser, preparatory, anticipatory, prophetic, and it's pointed now to a much better one, a greater one that would be associated with the Son of God in the world. And so a very pronounced uh, theme that the Song of Solomon here is kind of intersecting with, uh, at least poetically, and briefly, but something we see all, all over the place as the prophets kind of share a voice here in the Old Testament when they talk about this. Another exodus is coming. Another exodus is coming. Another exodus is coming. Another wandering is coming. Another promised land is coming. It's better. It's not a chunk of land physically off the east side of the Mediterranean. It is God himself. It is to be, spiritually speaking, one with the Lord, to be back where he is, and, and never to have any form of separation from him ever again, period. He's going to undo it. He's going to slay that giant of separation that serves as a huge antagonist in the biblical storyline, separation from God. So, going back to Song 3 then, 6 to 11, what uh, Song 3, especially verse 6, does here, subtly, is uses some of this Exodus Passover imagery when it says, what is that coming up from the wilderness? Like columns of smoke. This is the first thing that the woman says here on her wedding day. And seeing the groom coming up from the wilderness uh, towards the, the city uh, proper probably, or at least outside the city somewhere, to get married. Now again, wilderness, as we've been saying, is this super hyperlinked word in the Bible. Whenever you read it, you're probably reading about the Exodus proper in the Old Testament, or you're reading an allusion to it, or to the second Exodus that would come later in the storyline. So have that in mind too as you just read other parts of the Bible and you see wilderness come up. It, it's, a, it's there not just to be there, it's, it's there to point you elsewhere and ultimately gets you uh, to Christ. Super hyperlinked word, so click on it when you read. And whenever you read it then, you're probably getting all, uh, to one of those places as I said, especially in this case when it's linked with a column of smoke because when God led Israel up out of Egypt, he appeared to them as a pillar and a column of smoke at times, or fire at other times at night, but smoke during the day, guiding them through the wilderness as well, and then up eventually into the promised land. So Exodus 14 is an example that says, In the morning watch the Lord in the pillar of fire and the cloud, look down on the Egyptian forces, and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic. So just in reference there to the actual, actual event of escape that I was talking about earlier. So this is what the woman's seeing. She's, and this is what Solomon is writing down. When he's writing about himself getting married, he's using biblical theological exodus imagery, not just imagery of, hey, I see my bride, not just imagery of I'm coming up out of this particular area that's not quite the city yet, but he's using imagery that's used elsewhere to talk about God's amazing love, talk about escape, talk about a key component to the biblical storyline. This is as the, the author Barry Webb said earlier, this is par excellence. This is the story and event of God's saving love in the Old Testament. What everything looked back to. And 
what everything looked ahead to. When, again, we say another thing like that is coming in the future. We need to understand God's saving work in these ways, but expect it and want it in better ways. So similar, but, but greater. So the song then, going back to song three and verse six in particular, but really all of it, the song then poetically is connecting themes of weddings and love with this redemptive exodus motif in the Bible. And this is why the Jews traditionally read the song at Passover. It helped them make that connection. It's why we read it in this kind of amplified New Testament sense as well in linking it with Christ's love for the church, a particular redemptive love for the church at that. It's as if the woman here, seeing her husband-to-be, her beloved, coming up out of the wilderness for the wedding, can't help but see a glimpse of God himself leading his people away from slavery through the wilderness and up into a land of rest. And that is what we should see as well. When we, we, we get a glimpse of this, almost like out of the corner of our eye, we think, Exodus, I thought I saw it there for a second, or Passover, or God, or redemption, or freedom, or separation is ending. Like it did back there in that story, kind of, but like in, in a much greater capacity it does in, in the future. And again, that, that extra biblical layer that we add as Christians from a New Testament perspective is to see that more specifically as a forward-looking prophecy. So a picture of Jesus' love, his Exodus-like and Passover-like love for you and me and us and the world. And, and then I think the question becomes, so how does all of this help us understand the gospel better? Uh, why are we taking this kind of very scenic, roundabout way of going through all these events and, and people and stories and, and, and words of God in the Old Testament to kind of tie into what the Bible's really trying to get at here. And the question is, I think, how does this, the Song of Solomon, as it relates to the Exodus, help us understand the gospel of Jesus Christ better, the good news of his death and resurrection? Or more precisely, how does it help us define that love more specifically? And remember, we've said this a few times in this series already, Christians should, we aren't always this, not perfect of course, but we aren't always this way either, um, we should be the best at defining love. Because at the center of our reality is a God who calls himself love. Not loving, not just loving, but the, the essence of love. And he defines it also very specifically wrapped around his son's redemptive activities in the Bible. He says love is like this, and he holds out Jesus on a cross. This is love. Consider it. Look at it. Redefine what you think love is around this. Go. So fix, fix your, your, uh, your bad definitions of love around the cross. Because I'm telling you, the one who made everything out of nothing, and, and everything I say is true, it's perfect, it's right, and it corrects our misunderstandings, this is love. This is what I'm saying. So, so wrap your minds around it and, and fix your misconceptions because your understandings of love are, are not accurate enough. So love then is not, we know, primarily, in light of all we said here, an emotion. Love is an action. Love is redemptive. It goes after things. It buys things back to be, to be close to the one doing the buying. So, so then, if God's love then, and here's the connecting point, if God's love led Israel out of Egypt, if God's love led the church out of sin, if God's love redeemed this way in Ephesians 1.7, if it, in Jesus we have redemption 
through his blood, that's the agent, through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace. If his love is, uh, is in play, then what else can we say about that love is, is the question. And again, it's primarily an action, right? If we link love with those saving uh, events and, and works of history, primarily the two exoduses, if his love is a part of it, what else can we say? Love's an action. It does something. It redeems. It rescues. And that's one thing I think you see beautifully uh, in this passage in Song 3. is this juxtaposition between images of rest and comfort. And at one point, I love this phrase where it says, the daughters of Jerusalem inlaid his carriage with love. It's this, it's this comfort, very intimate, uh, even sexually suggestive, like it's about to happen thing uh, on the day of the wedding. Very intimate thing. And then you have these images of war and terror at the same time. <laughs> you know, the, the, the band of Solomon, his mighty men, 60 men with swords strapped on their thighs, and this, this phrase, terror by, against terror by night. It, I mean, it's like Solomon is ready to get married and go to war on the same day. I love that. What a great picture of love that, uh, that is. And certainly that's at the heart of the Exodus, God loving by delivering amidst Pharaoh's ensuing army, right? In the Old, in the Old Testament. Amidst that final plague, amidst other threats, he is showing love. But a very intriguing poetic relationship, I think, that, you know, a lot of you who've been married probably didn't have, you know, verse 8, is it? So the terror by night verse on the front of your wedding programs or something. It's just not the one we think of when we, when we think about this, but this is, when the Bible talks about weddings, it talks about war. It talks about fighting. It talks about enemies that are overcome in the context of uniting man and woman. Even if that even if the enemy is very, you know, non-personified, it could just be separation. So we'll talk about here a little bit more in a minute. But he is, and this is the thing, Solomon's ready to get married and go to war on the same day. What a picture of love. Love fights for someone, Right? It's not pacifistic or lazy. That's hatred. Love is protective. Love addresses threats. And again, to not do so is to not show love to the person that you're not protecting. You're, you're not protecting from the threats that they, are, that they are receiving. Christ was all of this and more for us. He loved us by fighting for us and redeeming us from our sin amidst the darkness. From the sixth to the ninth hour when Jesus hung on the cross, the sun went out. It was the worst darkness that, that the world, this is like noon to 3 p.m., by the way, so it would have been a, a miraculous thing. The worst darkness ever to befall uh, the earth because of what it was accompanying the death of God. There was no greater terror by night than when Jesus hung on that cross. There was no greater Solomon or king going to war against the terrors by night and what happened on the cross. M millennium, really, but centuries and centuries and centuries after uh, Solomon wrote this poem. Prophetic in that regard. No greater terror by night, no greater giant slain, no greater devil bound, no greater army overrun, and no greater love. See the important juxtaposition here. No greater battle fought on the, than on the cross 2,000 years ago. No greater giants. What's greater than death? What's greater than the devil? What's greater than his fallen angels? 
What's greater than our sin that's wrapped around our DNA so tight that we just can't get away from it? What's greater than that? Christ, who defeats it. He, he is greater. And what's greater as an enemy? Well, no one. Christ addresses these things, and in that shows us love. But see how it's juxtaposed with great gladness and great heart here at, at the same time. And that is the one thing I think the Song of Solomon really does for us, that God knew this. I think he wrote this into the storyline to help us see that there's something more going on here than just a simple transaction between God and lost people. And I think one of the things the song helps us then is to see, even if we're just reading the, about the Exodus like we kind of did a little bit here today, let's say you're reading the Old Testament, reading about the Exodus and reading about God saving people, or even parts of the New Testament, you're thinking about Jesus on the cross, or you're reading about Paul saying you've been redeemed from your sins and you're no longer a slave to your sins, or whatever you're doing, what the song helps us to, to do is to put a face to what God is feeling when he's delivering us. Because if we say, if we link all these things here, if we link not just the act of salvation, but what God is feeling for us when he's going through it, we have a much more complete puzzle, a much more complete equation of salvation to the whole thing. Not just a transaction, but an actual feeling of, as verse 11 says here, against terror by night on the top, fought a battle for us, but also this was the day of the gladness of his heart. It was the day of his wedding when he wedded lost sinners back to himself at the same time. So, and I'll, let me say this one more time. It's really important. Because I know, I know personally for me, I, go, I, I default back to this, which is a, not a wrong perspective, but it's an incomplete perspective about God and salvation all the time. I'm guessing all of you do as well, or some of you at least, are maybe in that place today. But this is the thing. Salvation is not just a transaction between a stronger party having mercy on a weaker party and then kind of just letting that party free or go. In light of all we've said today, salvation is an act of love. The greatest act of love that has ever been enacted in the world. You see how different they are? The, 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 the former's not wrong, it's just incomplete. If it's just a transaction for you, if it's just, okay, God transacted this salvation in the world. He did something to make me free. Good. That's great. We usually start there. But what we grow into, mature into as Christians is thinking, this was a glad thing for him. He wanted to. He loved me when he did it. He loved Israel when he, redemption is love. He loved them when he saved them up out of Egypt in the Old Testament. How much more did he love us in his son? He wanted, he desired, he, like Solomon here, came up and, and, and addressed threats, addressed the antagonist of separation in the story and wedded himself to the woman here. And, and let me just say this too, you, you don't know God well until you know that. You do not know God well, even at all, until you know that about his character. And some of you just aren't there yet. You understand some of the concepts about the gospel, but you don't understand that he's glad for you. He loves you when he's doing this, more than you'll ever possibly fathom. But he does. He's, this is a wedding day thing, not just a transaction like with the receipt. Oh, here's a receipt to prove that I saved you. Have a good life. He, he, it's a wedding. We are one with him. He's glad with you. He rejoices like a, bride, like a groom over a bride so is the love of God for us, Isaiah 62, 5b says. 
So in, in, the same, in the same manner, if you ever want to know, I'm forgetting the love of God, just go to a wedding, crash a wedding or something, and just sit in the back row, look at the groom, and think, that's what God thinks. The gladness in his heart, the anticipation, look at the groom and think, that's what God thinks of me because of his son. See how different that is from what we might default to, where you might be even today, with what God is thinking of you, how the former is very kind of transactionary. It's kind of like God's my employer. He's, he's kind of good to me, but we're not really that close. He watches over what I do, and he gives me like a little bit of a job report every once in a while and says, keep going, or, oh, it's kind of not too good. Kind of correct that, or going to get a pay doc here or something. The former's that. The latter is, is love. And I, I have one more passage here to read, too, from Hebrews 12 that gets at this just from a different angle. Let me read this in full, and I'll come back and explain it. Verse 18, Hebrews 12. For you, church, have not come to what may be touched. He's talking about the Old Testament uh, Mount Sinai here, which is representative of the Old Testament system. You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned to death. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you, church, have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn, speaking of the church, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. In other words, you guys and me, we've come to a wedding. We've come to a festal gathering. We've come to a party. We've come to happiness. See, and it wasn't always that way. In talking about that former picture of Mount Sinai, God was saying, I was at work in the world. I was kind of drawing near to people, but because, like we talked about last week, they were mediated to me by law by their own moral effort, by keeping up the Ten Commandments and, and like commands, which could never bring people close to God because it's not about us, it's about Him coming to us. But that system itself was associated with fear. It was associated with, I can't bear the command. It was associated with, get too close and you'll be stoned to death. Get too close to me and you'll die. That's where we are in our sin. Until God says, does something else in the world, He brings a different mountain, right, into the world and says, this mountain is the heavenly Jerusalem. This mountain is not like the former mountain. It's a mountain of celebration and partying because it's associated with Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. It's associated with his blood. It's associated with his redemption. So we can approach boldly. We don't have to have any more fear. See, we can, we can I mean, think about how much of a bummer it would be to be the guy at the wedding who's just kind of depressed and sad and, you know, like, I don't want to eat or I wish, you know, it was me, or I, 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 wish, I wish that, you know, this, I could be at home playing video games, or this is just kind of lame, or whatever. Like, come on, it's a wedding. Dance. Just get up, you know. Just get over yourself and <laughs> encourage the bride or groom for crying out loud. It's a party, you know. It's like, but we have that type of spirituality a lot when it comes to God as we, again, going back to the song imagery as it's projected onto Hebrews 12 here, as these, all, all these things relate, is God your boss or your father or your groom? Is he, your, is he your employer or is he your groom? Are you close to him or can you not quite get close? Do you fear? Do you have an unhealthy fear or 
is your mount, uh, the, the second mount here, where there's festal gathering. The angels themselves are celebrating with all of us, the church, in terms of what, look what God has done in the world. He has died in the place of sinners. He has shed blood and, and we, we've, he's painted it over the lives and the hearts of his people so that wrath and judgment might pass over them. See, we have the ultimate Passover to experience and to expect in the future when judgment comes. We will not be judged for what we've done. We will not die. We will not suffer the plague. It will not befall you and me. If you believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if you put faith in the redemptive work of his blood, paint it over your heart, and don't have fear. God's not going to look at that blood and say, well, not quite satisfactory. He didn't paint it quite well enough over his heart. Or, yeah, I kind of looked over... Israel in the Old Testament, but I'm just not going to look over the ultimate Israel, the better Exodus type thing here in the New. He's not going to do that. He, he loves you. That's just transaction, remember. This is an act of love, and he promises, this, he promises you if you believe. You will never lose that salvation. I don't care what you've done. He nails it to the cross with himself and says, I'll bear the brunt. I'll take the blow. And if you believe in me, you can celebrate before my presence and be with me where I am again in the ultimate new promised land that we now experience in part, but will one day, praise be to God, experience in full. Two things to wrap up here. Uh, one is verse 11. Look at how this ends. Look at what she says. Look at the beloved. Look. Verse 11 says, look upon King Solomon to her friends who are there. Look at him. Look at how he's coming up out of the wilderness. He's, he's wedding himself to me, she's saying. But, but look, this, is, this has ramifications for other people who are watching this occur. Look at him. That's, the, that's actually the only imperative here, really, in the whole passage. So this is what you need to do today. Don't think, yeah, I've done that before. Wrong application. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. You need to proactively look at Jesus this week. That takes time. That takes saying no to things. That takes effort. That takes focus on his grace. You have to do it. I have to do it. This is what we've, we're called to looking at him, not to moral command, not to doing more, to looking and gazing at his grace better so that at least maybe if that one piece is I'm not thinking about the gladness of God's heart when he's saving me, maybe that's the piece that you look to and say, that's the piece I need to know better. Or it's another aspect of what he did for you on the cross that you need to grow in and you'll never finish, but you and I, uh, that's, that's our ultimate call as Christians is to grow in that throughout our days. And look at how he initiated all of this as well, right? Does the woman come up out of the wilderness or does the man? The man. Does the man move towards the woman or the woman towards the man? The man towards the woman. Just like Christ, the ultimate man, moves towards the bride. Uh, you and I, the church. So movement here is, uh, is on God. It's not on us. The Bible does not say go out to him and, and find him and cling to him. He's hiding. It's hide and seek time in the wilderness. He's saying, no, he's coming up out of that. And, and, and he's, he's glad to do it. And he's wedding himself to you. This is another, another way to say God saves you by grace. Stop trying to be good before him. Stop it. Don't, he's, this does not say go out and look for him. It says he's looking for you. He's wedding him. This is a pronounced theme in song if you haven't been here for the past few weeks. This is to see the man doing the initiating is a gospel theme. Because Christ is the man here. If it were the other way around, it would be you save yourself by what you do. If the woman was initiating, it would be to suggest that you have to live a life that's proper and holy and worthy 
to earn that love. But that's not what we see. We see God is the initiator. God is the giver of grace. God is Solomon here as the one initiating the wedding, coming to where she is that she might be with him where, where he is. And so last then, uh, related to this, finally gotten to the human side here. Just a couple of passing comments, but it is important. Uh, the human side is then to ask then, in light of all this, the first thing most important, cling to that good news. This is what God has done in the world. Believe, believe, and believe again in Jesus Christ, the ultimate Solomon. Look upon him and receive his grace and be saved. The other side is, is to say, is to ask us, because remember, we all tell stories with our relationships. I mean, married or not, you can have, this can be true on a friend level, a you know, boss-employer level, neighbor level. It can, it can be true on a number of different levels, but especially in a marriage, we all tell stories with our love stories in our marriages. It's either a good story or a bad story. The question is, what story are you, are you linking up with this Song of Solomon story and how you, you, you operate in your marriage, or are you not? And so we, we have that constant thing before us, you know, especially as Christians, where we ask, is the way I love my wife, husbands, or wives, is the way I love my husband, is that reflective of the way the song is written and what the song's pointing to? Does it, does it reflect it? Does it put it on display for the church and the world to see? So the, the specific angle on this today, I think, is how are your marriages redemptive? How is redemption tied into your love stories? In other words, let me flush that out. Does it battle aloneness and separation? Is it full of sacrificial love? Do you constantly put yourself lower than your spouse? In the spirit of how Christ was sacrificed as the ultimate Passover lamb. This is all Exodus imagery, by the way, as well. Redemptive imagery. Do you try to, to win your spouse back by putting his or her needs before your own. And that, that's a redemptive type idea. Does it lead your, your love, your spouse, to a safe place of rest? Promised land like rest. Is that, could, could you just say the way that's worded there, or you could, you could reword that in your mind if you want, but it's one way to do it. But is that fairly descriptive of your marriage currently? Like, are you leading each other to a very safe place in the home, a place of rest where it's just nice to come home at night because it's not chaotic? I guess if you have kids, it's chaotic. But, regard, I mean, but even, even in light of that, is it, is it a place of stability and, and order on an emotional level, on a spiritual level? Or is there just something going on that you're not addressing? Are you not wearing the sword on your thigh and going, taking responsibility and fighting for your marriage when you see these obstacles? When you feel, yeah, hey, we're, we're sitting next to each other at the dinner table, but we're a million miles apart emotionally. Redemptive love battles that. Redemptive love brings your spouse back in, deals with it, talks about it, addresses it, raises it, speaks that love language so they can win her or him uh, back into, into your life. And then, and then last, does it forgive sin? If you're not forgiving your spouse's sin, you're not having redemptive love in your marriage because redemption has to do with forgiveness of sins, biblically, as we've seen today. So tell the story of the gospel of the forgiveness of sins by how you forgive how you, uh, 1 Peter 4, 8, one of my favorite verses to read at uh, weddings, um, when I officiate weddings, is above all, uh, love each other earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. This is the end of uh, 1 Peter, it's 1 Peter 4, 8. So at the end of his letter, he's, he's saying like after all this instruction, above all that, just love people tirelessly. 
And I think it applies in any relationship, but maybe especially to, to marriage. Above all, at the end of the day, love sacrificially. Because so, when you do that, when you love, it's going to cover up sin in the sense that it will bring peace amidst offense, like Christ ultimately does for us on the cross. But in a lesser, reflective way, when we love, it's going to cover up sin. It's going to bridge. It's going to battle separation. It's going to undo that. It's going to, like Christ has done for us, bringing us back to God, it's going to bring our spouse uh, back, back into us. And again, in all these things and more, just a few things to have in mind and to evaluate your marriage or your marriage to be or what you want your marriage to be like in the future. Um, how is the, the theme of redemption uh, tied, or not? How is it not tied in to the story you're telling? Because you are telling a story. It just might be a very bad one. <laughs> with your marriage? Is it a good one or is it a very bad one? Is it pointing to Jesus or, or not? <clears throat> you can't not tell a story with your marriage, the Bible says. I mean, all marriages tell a story. Some are terrible and some are pretty great. A lot, most of ours are somewhere in the middle, by God's grace. But as we kind of approach, you know, seek to approach this side of health and blessing and man, people are going to really understand what Jesus did for, on the cross for the world when they look at my marriage. What a, what a great, noble thing to aim for. Uh, and especially, we talked about in this series a lot, men, especially men, take responsibility and make sure this is happening. Uh, it's on both, it's on both the, the husband and wife, no doubt, it's reciprocal uh, to a degree. But especially men, as you guys lead in the marriage, as you're the Christ figure primarily, as the man who should, like Solomon, move towards your wife, be that primary mover. Uh, if this is not happening well, it's probably more on you than your wife. And it's, it's on me and my marriage for sure. When this is not happening, it's my fault because I should be taking responsibility more and not being as lazy and being more proactive to ask these hard questions about the type of love that I'm showing my wife. So especially men, uh, light that fire underneath, get up off the couch and be proactive and re redemptively loving your wife in all these ways and more so that the world might see, ah, oh, that's how Christ has loved me. It's, it's, it's similar but greater uh, than that, just like the Exodus, the second Exodus was similar but greater uh, type of love. <clears throat> Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, your grace in this passage. Uh, we, can, we can look at a wedding today, uh, but also, God, um, <clears throat> we can see the particular slant on it where uh, we see how love is redemptive. It battles things, and it provides a place of comfort and rest. Simultaneously, those things are not, uh, are not mutually exclusive. Uh, so thank you that you've loved us by fighting for us. You've loved us by slaying a giant for us. You've loved us by undoing separation between you and us. That's what the cross is all about. God, so as we especially look to the com uh, communion table here, which, again, a meal, Jesus, you ate uh, in kind of an ultimate sense on Passover, the night before you died, as we lump all these themes, continue to weave all these themes together as we're supposed to in the Bible. Help us to worship, to be thankful, to look to our Solomon, to look to our ultimate Solomon as the king the ultimate lover of our souls, and uh, the initiator of that grace. <clears throat> and just be glad. Uh, so pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat>